0: Please listen carefully, carefully, carefully.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Utterly Moderate podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss big, important topics by presenting just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and bias. I'm Allison Dagnes, and I'm a political scientist.
2: And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How are you today, Allie?
1: I'm good, Lawrence, but I am itchy.
2: Itchy? (laughs) I didn't have itchy on the uh, Allie intro bingo card.
1: Yeah, I'm really itchy. I'm really, really itchy.
2: So you're itchy, so uh, expand on that for us.
1: Thank you. I think I will. Um, (laughs) (sighs) I threw on a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, and I went to go take my Buick-sized dog for a walk. And um, I guess in the course of of trying to tire this dog out, uh, I must have crashed like a mosquito wedding or a mosquito bar mitzvah or some (laughs) sort of bar mitzvah. (laughs) It could have really been it could have been anything. Okay, it could have been any kind of social function, but I must have walked right in the middle of it. And I guess I must have made them all mad, which, of course, I did not realize until the middle of the night because I woke up and realized, like, ow, my legs are really itchy. And I did not know what was happening. And because I'm, um, a major hypochondriac, I was like, this is how it's had. This is how I'm going to die. I'm going to die from leg it itch. Yeah, that's it. And I'm flailing and I'm kicking Pete and he's just getting like black and blue. Is this you the know, same just... Pete who
2: just had spinal surgery? Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Yes, okay, right. Gotcha. He's just, yeah. And I'm, I'm kicking him in the back and I'm kicking him in the groin. And he's not saying anything, right? I mean, dude invaded Afghanistan. He's like, this is fine. I'm in a bed. It's totally okay. Who cares? Um and, and the grand I'm, scheme of things, this ain't like, so Whatever. Bad. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I don't even... Yeah, it's fine. Uh And so so I took a shower the next morning. I was like, what is going on? And I looked down and my legs are just covered in mosquito bites. And I really want to go on the record here. If I were some kind of nature girl, then okay. Because that happens to my friends who are nature girls. Oh, You've
2: made it very clear. You do not like to go outside.
1: No, I would like to <laughs> uh, steal a line from one of my favorite movies, The Last Supper. I am, I am pro- Earthling. I'm not anti-earth, but I'm pro-earthling. And a friend of the pod, Chrissy Senecle, you know, this is for you. I I love the fact that they that I've got friends who are big outdoorsy people, you know, you're your hikers, your spelunkers, you know, the we've got a lot, a lot of students, a lot of friends who are. Major hunters and gatherers. Uh, I think that's hunters awesome. And gatherers. Yeah, b- both hunters and gatherers. We have many friends who are time travelers. <laughs> <And> look, they, <laughs> but we are. We have a wide variety of friends and and students. I had a student who was a bear hunter. I think that's wild. I thought that was cool. I asked if when he was done hunting the bear, if he like took the whole skin off and wore it like as like a coat. I was like, that's so cool. And he just he he did not. He didn't do it. I was like, well, there's a missed opportunity. Um, and the
2: student then looked at you quietly, put his head back down and finished his exam.
1: That's exactly right. <laughs> and that explains the comment that he wrote on my teaching evaluation.
3: That's right.
1: <laughs> it was an okay class. Professor was a little strange. Um, it, you know, I appreciate the outdoors, but I appreciate it from the inside. That's why God invented windows. And. Um, <laughs> And I just think that that's the last time I might go outside in shorts ever again.
2: (laughs) Ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope you feel better soon, Allie. And uh, wherever you are listening to our show today, whether you are driving to work or running on the treadmill or at a mosquito bar mitzvah, we've got a great show for you today. We are interviewing conservative political commentator Mona Charon from The Bulwark. But before we get to that, Allie, I've got a big announcement.
1: Ooh, exciting. I love announcements.
2: I'm quitting the show. No, I'm just kidding. No,
1: you can't do that. You're the one who edits it. It'll just If you leave, it'll just be me just saying things.
2: <laughs> just you talking into the void. Now, uh, my big announcement is that towards the end of this month, the end of August, maybe early September, we're going to have a show that is going to have a mystery guest. I'm not going to tell you what the topic is. I'm not going to tell you who the guest is. Uh, Allie's not going to find out any of this until she shows up. To record the show, this is a show just for you, Allie.
1: A mystery guest?
2: Mystery topic. I'm not gonna tell you what the topic is, and I'm not gonna tell you who the guest is. You just have to show up and see who it is. And
1: that is very unfair. I, okay, wait, I need to, <laughs> I need some more. I need just a tiny, I need, okay. I can't tell you, you who can't... she is,
2: but I. Oh, she. It's, it's okay, good. Oh, okay. I mean, no, hold on. Okay.
1: Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I well, that answered the first thing. This is what I meant. I That answered the first <laughs> thing, which was like, do I have to dress up for this? Like, do I. Is this like, what are we talking here? I mean, is this. <laughs> Is this a Jeffrey Dean Morgan situation, in which case I really have to look fantastic? Is this a Tim Miller situation where I really have to be like on my A-game and look fantastic? Is this a, okay, so you said she. Um, Okay. No, I meant to say uh mm -hmm, uh 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 Okay, you've narrowed it down to 51% of the (laughs) American populace. So, all right. That could be a lot of people. This is exciting. This is very exciting.
2: Yes, and I'm not giving any more hints. So I wanna throw a challenge out there to our listeners. Between now and August 29th, I want you to send your guesses to utterlymoderate at gmail.com or you can go to utterlymoderatenetwork.com and just send your guesses through the contact form there. And uh, we'll read your guesses on air, and if you get it right, then we will send you an Amazon gift card.
1: This is so exciting! I I am racking my brain to think of who <laughs> you would book without me even knowing it.
2: I'll just give you one hint.
1: I am so okay. excited. Okay,
2: the guest's name rhymes with sailor. Grift.
1: Oh my God. No, it doesn't. You <laughs> booked Swaler Hift <laughs> to be on our show. No. Now I'm gonna Swift, now I'm gonna have to <laughs> drive to your house and punch you until you tell me where it is.
2: Uh Taylor Show's publicist has said the next step is um a protective order. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's mm-hmm.
1: great. Okay, cool.
2: So I actually can't ask her anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, probably wise. Uh yeah. Or say her name and (laughs) every time we do, (laughs) we're going to (laughs) be fined or something like that. Um, Okay. Well, this is very exciting. Mystery guest.
2: Mystery guest.
1: Mystery guest. All right. I'm going to send you an email too. I'm going to guess myself.
2: Well, I look forward to reading your guess, Allie, and I look forward to reading all of our listeners' guesses. So please, by August 29th, send your guesses to utterlymoderate at gmail.com or you can go to utterlymoderatenetwork.com and go to the contact page and you can send your guesses in through there. We will read your guesses on air before the guest arrives and whoever gets it right, we're going to mail you an Amazon gift card. So um, that episode is going to air sometime around the end of August or early September. So make sure to get your guesses in by August 29th. All right. Well, today we are being joined by conservative political commentator Mona Charon from The Bulwark. This is going to be a great conversation up next. Okay, well, today we are very excited to be joined by conservative political commentator Mona Charon, who is a nationally syndicated columnist, policy editor at The Bulwark, as well as the host of The Bulwark's Beg to Differ podcast. Mona Charon, welcome to the show.
3: Oh, thank you so much for asking.
1: Our first question for you has to do with... This incredible wealth of experience that you have. You've worked at the National Review. You worked in the Reagan White House. You worked as a speechwriter for Jack Kemp in his 1988 presidential bid. You've been a syndicated columnist. You were on CNN's Capital Gang in the 1990s. And I'm so interested to know how your job as a journalist, as an analyst, and as a commentator has changed throughout this time.
3: Well, <laughs> I guess um, I guess I've changed more than the job has changed. Hmm. Um, I, I would say um, I look at some of the young commentators, and I see echoes of my past self. You know that they are sort of trying to be part of a mold of you know this is what a conservative says or does. And, um, I, I think there was a little bit of that in me, to be perfectly honest, when I was first trying to make my name in the world that, that I was going to speak up for the conservative ideas. I believed them and it, I wasn't insincere in any respect, but I was much more of a partisan, much more interested in, in, um, the battle of ideas. And I was going to, you know, uh, stake out the conservative, uh, point of view and, and, in recent years, I have been much less interested in that and much more interested in just trying to find my way to the truth, whatever it is, whichever direction it may come from. I'm much more open to good faith arguments from any direction.
2: As you stand here now, not when you were in the Reagan White House, not years past, but as you stand here now, what, what are the core tenets of conservatism to you? And then what do you think the core tenets of conservatism are to most Republicans today? And is there a difference?
3: Uh, great question. So there, I think there's an enormous chasm between those two things. Um, conservatism uh, rightly understood, or at least as I understand it um, is a respect for the past. Um, as uh, somebody once said, the dead get a vote um, a, a sense that you, um, that things are a certain way because they made sense over generations and generations, and that before you tamper with current arrangements, it's important to make sure that you understand them and you understand what would happen if they were tampered with. Um, and so, that's part of it and a, a sense that change should be gradual and organic and not radical is all part of being a conservative, a respect for tradition, a respect for markets, um, for the, uh, for, for freedom, uh, and, uh, and for, uh, individual, uh, respecting individual rights. All of those things are sort of the, the foundations of a conservative worldview. Also, I would say, just on an emotional level, that conservatism, as I ex- have experienced it, and and as I was taught it when I was younger, is uh, arises a lot out of a sense of gratitude that you know you you come into this world and you're given these great gifts. American citizenship, wealth, uh, you know, liberty, uh, so many things that others fought and died for, and a sense of gratitude for all those things, I think, is another part of a conservative perspective. The Republican Party now and, and Conservatism, Inc. Um, has pretty much parted ways from most of those sentiments. Um, they are quite radical. They are very much Nietzschean, you know, it's about the will to power. It's about uh, liberal tears. It's about hurting your opponents and reveling in it. Um, it's not about persuasion anymore. Um, it's, uh, it's really about battle. And I am very, very worried. And if you follow my work, this doesn't surprise you, but I'm really worried that the Republican Party and conservative movements both have lost their allegiance to the rule of law and that is the most fundamental conservative value there is is reverence for the rule of law for doing things by the book by the rules uh not resorting to violence and not resorting uh to extra legal measures if if we lose that it's the ball game
2: you've written that uh the real steel is coming that uh the big lie which was a lie, right? Trump, at least a year before, I mean, he set it up in, in his uh, win, but lost in the popular vote to Clinton, saying, well, I didn't really lose the popular vote. And I think at least a year before the Biden uh, loss, he said, I'll win, but if I lose, it's fake. I still won, right? So, and then he he loses and he, and he lies. But, and you've written in a, a variety of folks of the bulwark have written that in lying about this election being stolen, they're going to change the rules, and the norms so that next time they actually do steal the election. So I'm, I'm, I'm asking you sort of two questions. Can you expand upon that part of it? The real steal is coming, but also how worried are you? I feel like the next, not necessarily the midterms, although that could be an issue, but 2024 could be kind of a, a breaking point for democracy. What, what's your view on that?
3: Yeah. Um, first of all, just to amplify on your question itself. I, I mean, the fact that people do not process that Donald Trump always says when he doesn't get a win that it's rigged, always. He said it about the Iowa caucuses in 2016. He said it about the Emmy Awards. I mean, <laughs> when his his TV show didn't get an award, you know, it's rigged. It's rig- the fact that people don't put that together and think, huh, you know, maybe he's not telling the truth He, he is a, 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 no question that he's a unique malevolent lunatic. Um, And um, so, so many of the things that, that we're living through are in part just, you know, radiation coming off that, that, that radioactive core. But, um, but obviously he wouldn't have been successful if there weren't ground prepared for that. And uh, if there, if the institutions weren't already weak, So, um, so your question about the real steel and, you know, look, um, uh, after world war one, um, the Nazis in Germany, uh, convinced the German people that they hadn't really lost the war, um, that it had all been a sellout by the elites and that, you know, there was a stab in the back and that it was by, you know, the arms manufacturers and the generals and the Jews and all of these people had conspired to rob Germany of its rightful victory. It was a lie, but it took hold. Um, and once, uh, the, you know, Trump has lied, as we know, about absolutely everything under the sun, but this lie about the election was the most destructive and the most poisonous because once people don't feel that they're, Oh, you have a dog on your bed.
2: <laughs> well, we're going to get to the, we're going to get to the cat and dog war at the end. Okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Such a cutie. Um, but once people don't uh, trust that the votes are legitimate, um, then Violence becomes not only possible, it becomes the only alternative, right? Um, and so that's my worry that, um, that in 2024, uh, will there be a, a move, whether Trump is the nominee, especially if Trump is the nominee, but even if it's someone else, will there be so much distrust and a willingness? We've already seen a willingness to disregard the um to disregard the voters and substitute you know trump's wishes and and the wishes of of his acolytes will that will that be the case in 2024 will we have say it's a close election and it goes to the house of representatives um you know will (laughs) how, how will republicans vote um or say, uh, there is some, it's very close and there's some question about the votes from a certain County, uh, you know, Republicans have shown the willingness to, to be, to win at all costs. And, you know, that also could then trigger fury on the left. Um, they have their grievances. They feel that, you know, Merrick Garland was not properly, you know, seated. They have all kinds of sense, you know, that, uh, that, that the Electoral College unfairly advantages Republicans, which it does at the moment. So we are in treacherous, very treacherous territory, I'm sorry to say. I mean, by nature, I'm a fairly happy and optimistic person. But as I look at our country, I don't know whether 2020 is going to be seen in history as the last time we had a free and fair election, or, you know, one without, we didn't, it, it didn't, come off without violence. Uh, we'll see if 2024 runs smoothly. I don't know.
2: One of my friends, uh, asked me if I'm being overly pessimistic. I I always qualify. I say, I'm not saying the next election will be the end of democracy. What I'm saying is those are the stakes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm, uh, I'm with you because I'm normally a very optimistic, person. And um, my husband likes to say that I play by 90s rules, you know, so, where back in the 90s, you could you could get together across the aisle and, you know, and, and I just remembered it's the most wonderful um, tributes because I worked at C-SPAN in the 90s. And and um, I remember when George Mitchell retired and, and Bill Cohen just teared up and, and read this beautiful, beautiful piece of work from, you know, Chief Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes and it was just it was like this lovely you know sort of yeah. oh it was just so nice and 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 it was a time also where a lot of people were left behind and I understand where the anger on both sides has come from and and you are correct that that we are in a time right now where the Lawrence and I frequently talk about the the grass is dry and yeah. so it just takes a little bit of a flame to you know, to make everything catch on fire, or as
2: Charlie says, a clown with a flamethrower. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah,
1: no, it's true. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, you know, yeah. He does have a flamethrower. Um, Absolutely.
3: By the way, I'm sorry to interrupt your question, yeah. and I hope I won't ruin your train. No, of thought, not at all. But I just wanted to mention, you know, you were talking about the um, the farewell for uh, for Mitchell. You know, rereading uh, Al Gore's concession speech in 2000. Oh my gosh! It was like. It made your heart swell. It was beautiful. And it was such a a, a wonderful tribute to the spirit of America and to the rule of law and to the fact that we are, you know, we have to come together
1: and support our new president. It was amazing. It was. Um, I played it for uh, my students because (laughs) before the 2020 election. Yeah, Because we were getting the word of, you know, this is a very unusual election. There are mail-in ballots. This is, especially in Pennsylvania, where a Republican state legislature had passed a law that said, we will not begin counting. I know. You know, and so. That was
3: despicable.
1: It was. And and so all of the, you know, well, I don't know why they're counting votes now. Well, because you guys wanted us to count. Yeah. votes Afterwards, you know, like, yeah. what are we doing here? But I played that concession speech and I said, this is, this is the way that democracy runs. Right, and so you're right. It's the it that that's why we play by '90s rules, Miss Sharon. That's why we play by '90s rules because <laughs> exactly. the rhetoric was so beautiful then.
3: Yes, yes, and the, and even though the reality was sometimes harsh, and the bitterness between the two parties was definitely palpable. Mm-hmm. On some occasions, um, there was a a ground level commitment on both sides to live by the rules and to follow the rules and not to attempt to subvert the will of the voters uh, and not to attempt to seize power illegitimately.
1: Which feels like a very low bar at this point. (laughs) But, um, but, you know, but uh, but now we're no longer there. We're really not. And and I guess all of that actually does lead nicely to my question for you, which is um, how much you and I both agree about the lack of decency now. Um, You've written so much and so many beautiful articles, and I've heard you speak so eloquently about just the lack of decency. And that is what that's what gets at me more than almost anything. I mean, the 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 lack of confidence in our institutions and the the distrust of politicians cuz I'm a huge fan of politicians. I think it takes a lot to run for office and I think that politicians of of all stripes are are, you know, generally brave and honorable people. But it's this lack of this lack of decency towards one another and our ability to maintain these hostilities that really keeps me up at night. Um and so could you speak to that a little bit cuz I I sense that you feel um, that as strongly as I do?
3: Oh, absolutely. Um it's it's the thing I I grieve over, honestly, uh, the most. Um, I was just talking with Charlie Sykes today on his podcast about that just despicable, disgusting video uh, that Dinesh D'Souza released where he was mocking the officers who were held off the mob on January 6th, mocking them, laughing at them. And it is, it is just amazing that, that, this complete lack of empathy, utter disdain for other human beings, real cruelty and savagery has appeared um, on the right um, in the, on these entertainment shows. Laura Ingram too, was doing the same sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess I ask myself, um, how did we get here so fast? So, so fast. I mean, the I've always thought that civilization was a thin veneer uh, on top of our roiling emotions and, and darker impulses. And I've always been aware that it was fragile, but even I have been stunned at how quickly it has just disintegrated. And you know, the people like Dinesh D'Souza and some of these others on the right the irony is these people all claim to be speaking for Western civilization, right? They're standing up for traditional values and, and the codes of the West. And they don't represent even the basics of human decency. Uh, far less the elevated standards of, uh, of, you know, the code of the gentleman, uh, you know, or, or, or any of the more elaborate standards of civility that have evolved over centuries. No, they are, they are crude, barbaric, bullying, miserable human beings, and, uh, and they, they don't represent any civilization. Uh, they represent its opposite. They're the barbarians themselves.
2: You know, you are a conservative, a proud conservative. You have been for a long time. And that's why I and I, I don't necessarily prize your perspective because of that. There's lots of conservatives and lots of liberals. Uh, I prize your perspective because you're a conservative who will, in good faith, objectively try to analyze Biden's performance and be able to sort of set aside your values and your beliefs and and, and give an honest appraisal, which is what I think the, the bulwark does really well, right, is... You state, here's our values. Here's our, what we believe in, but also in good faith, we hear the things that we think the, the other side is doing well. They aren't doing so well. You guys stand on the empirical reality. You know, I think you do that really, really well. So I think you're a good Thank person to, to ask this question of. I'm an avid reader, by the way, and as I'm is so Ali. So, um, so to this point in Biden's presidency, uh, from your vantage point, what has his administration done well? And then what do you think they could really improve upon?
3: Sure. Um. Well, so uh, as far as what they've done well, um, first of all, A number one, he's not in our face every five seconds on Twitter. Uh, So that's great. Uh, He has returned the presidency to something like its normal uh, place in the scheme of things. So that's great. Um, he has appointed people, uh, some of whom have, you know, been very dignified and uh, and and brought uh, a certain amount of honor back to public service instead of the, you know, kind of grifters and frauds and crooks that Trump surrounded himself with. But look, on the other hand, um, there are things that I just am not going to like in a Biden administration. And I said this when I wrote a column saying that I was voting for him. Um I don't agree with them on abortion. Uh, I don't agree with them on, um, on the huge amounts of government spending that they want to pass. I'm a skeptic of government spending. Uh, I think a certain amount is necessary and certainly the, 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 uh, rescue of the economy during COVID was a special situation. And I understand that, but, uh, we're, you know, I, I, I am quite concerned about the waste that is involved in some of these government huge, you know, trillions of dollars of spending. I'm worried about, because in my sense as, as a conservative is that a lot of government money winds up not in the hands of those who need it most, but those who are best at getting their hands on government money. And uh, frequently that's people who are well-connected, people who know how to game the system. Um, And uh, so I worry about that. Uh, I'm also a little concerned uh, about inflation. Um, Admittedly, we have not seen inflation at other times when I thought perhaps we might, like in uh, 2009, uh, where I was a little bit concerned there too. Uh, we didn't, I, I freely admit my worries were, were not, um, were not valid. It, it didn't, it didn't show up, but, uh, but I don't think we've erased the laws of economics, you know, completely. And so I do worry about the combination of loose money at the fed and this, you know, trillions upon trillions uh, that have already been pumped into the economy. During COVID and now followed by more trillions, I'm really I'm concerned that that we could get inflation. If we do, it will be very questionable how well we would handle that as a society. Uh, because as we were talking about earlier, where you said the grass is dry, you know, you just add any major stressor to this country, and it is not at all clear that that uh, we would handle it well. So I'm I'm worried about. Uh, Inflation. I'm also critical of the Biden administration for continuing the protectionist trade policies that Trump put in place. Uh, I, I'm really uh, amazed that they have not reversed course on those. I think they're very um, uh, misguided. And finally, I would say the um, Democratic Party in general, and this includes the Biden President uh, Administration, has had has not had its eye on the ball about where the danger lies in terms of protecting democracy. They have been so focused on these laws that Republican legislatures have been passing about voting. Now, a lot of these laws are sort of uh, mean-spirited. Um, they they um, ratify to some degree the big lie by you know arguing that we need laws to prevent voter fraud, which didn't happen. Nevertheless, the laws themselves are not really, they're not a return to Jim Crow. You know, putting voter ID in is nothing like Jim Crow uh, limits. And that's not what they should be worried about. What they should be worried about are things like the Electoral Count Act from 1887, which is a mess and leaves very unclear what would happen in the event of a legislature trying to You know, change the electoral college uh, count for its state, for example. So those are the. That's where I think they've they've gotten off the point, and and I think they should redirect their efforts toward reforming the electoral count act and and clarifying how votes are counted, not how votes are cast.
1: Why have they dropped the ball on that? Because that feels like something. That is not only important, but also potentially doable yeah. to revamp the law from 1886,
3: 87. Yeah, or 87. 80, I mean, whatever. Yeah, I am. Um, I don't know why they haven't. Uh, I, I guess part of it is that sort of this pent up demand, you know, that they've had this HR one thing, you know, on mm-hmm. the back burner for so long, and now they have a chance. They, as they see it, to pass it, though, they really don't have an a- opportunity to pass it. Just mm-hmm. ask Joe Manchin. Right. Um, but um, I don't know. I mean, they they really are missing the boat here, and uh, it's not in their. It's it's against their own interests.
2: Uh, was Biden the first? Democrat, you voted for, and uh, whether that's yes or no, how did you feel pulling the lever?
3: Um, it, he was the first Democrat I voted for, um, and I felt great pulling the lever uh, because uh, it was a national emergency. Um, another four years of Donald Trump would have, I don't know what it would have done, but it, it I'm not optimistic about what the outcome would have been if he had gotten a second term. So never cast a vote more happily. Wow.
1: <laughs> I think you and my husband would get along really, really well. He, <laughs> he has said very similar things. <laughs> he has a model train
3: room.
2: He has a that, model train room.
1: That's really a draw for many people, Lawrence, but, but still, um, it is for Lawrence. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. It is for Lawrence. Um, I, Recently watched two C-SPAN Q and As with you and Ruth Marcus. Oh gosh, which were charming and so much fun to watch. <laughs> and um, you two grew up together in New Jersey, and uh, so you were childhood friends. And now you are swimming in the same Washington waters. Um, and so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that friendship, and also then sort of branch out to a larger discussion about the role of bipartisanship in policymaking and all of the discussions that go around policymaking, because it feels that if you're not even talking to somebody with whom you might have a policy disagreement, then that all breaks down a little bit.
3: Yeah. So Ruth and I met in the fourth grade um, <laughs> and uh, and became good friends in high school, Um and, um, I don't know if I mentioned this in either of the Q and A's that we did with Brian, but, uh, but I, I give Ruth a lot of credit for, for giving me a kick in the behind to get uh, academically in gear because we were comp- we were fierce competitors with one another. Really? And so, you know, she was more self-disciplined and, and a better worker than I was. I tended to be kind of lazy and do things at the last minute and pull an all-nighter. But the competition with Ruth made me get serious. And so, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I give her, for whatever good things came my way, after that because i worked harder I, I have to give her some share of the credit also we even in high school we disagreed i was leaning conservative and she was leaning liberal but we always argued and talked and and uh, didn't affect our friendship mm-hmm. and um i um i think that was that was good sort of infield practice um for for later on you know that you can disagree without being disagreeable as the cliche has it and and uh And so it was a, it was a really, a a good experience. Um, Unfortunately, uh, the days of Washington being a place where people could uh, disagree during the day and then get together in the evening uh, have long since passed. Um, And, uh, and I've said, you know, it's, uh, it's been driven home to me since the Trump era. um, Just how true that is because I, there are quite a few people who used to be in my social circle that, that I don't socialize with anymore because we've differed about politics and, uh, and it's sad, but it's, it's a reality. Um, it, it, uh, it just, anyway, you can cut that if you want.
2: (laughs) Do you want me to cut it or can I keep it?
1: Um,
3: I don't know. It's up to you. Well,
1: Can I ask Um, a follow-up question to that? Sure. ask Because, because I feel that I feel that very powerfully, that losing friends and losing the networks that we've built up over the years um, has been something... It's such a tremendous loss. It
3: is. It's very painful. It's very, very painful. Um, And, uh, you know, people who... People who say, you know, oh, those never Trumpers, you know, they're they're selling out, which is hilarious because, you know, the, the the real, you know, the the only way to earn money in the Trump era was to be a pro Trump person, right. and there was a, you know, you could cash in that way for sure. Being anti Trump had no financial <laughs> benefits whatsoever. Um, but uh, but also, you know, it was to, to be cut off from your social circle is mm-hmm. is very painful and uh, and lonely. And, you know, it's not something anybody would voluntarily do unless they felt that it was really a matter of deep
1: conscience. But I also I also would imagine that professionally it was heartbreaking because you had worked in these circles with so many smart people for so long. And then to see those networks begin to fragment and some of them dissolve. um, Yeah, I I am sure that that was really awful too, because you know you 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 are working so much now, which is another question that I will ask you in a minute. But um, that just to see the what you have built up, right? You're, it's not that your legacy is gone; it's just that it isn't going to get the celebration from as wide uh, a circle as it would have because of your lack of fealty to one single politician feels odd and wrong?
3: <laughs> well, um, it's, uh, it, it is very, um, it's disconcerting. Uh, it's odd uh, to be in your 60s. And rather than to feel that, uh, you know, you're, uh, you know, at the an eminence grease of your party and your movement and all of that, and instead, you're an outcast. Well, I mean if that's if that's the way it is that's the way it is uh but it is it is a little it's a little disorienting i have to say yeah it is I'm really sorry
1: because oh, that thanks. really is awful i'm really sorry
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm not talking about the louis gomers of the world and the people who are clearly a little off kilter um I'm talking about the people who are very, very smart, have gone to good schools, who who know what the truth is, who who know how democracy works, you know, know how elections work, all those sorts of things. So, when you think of these big media personalities, politicians, and even people in your life who you've known very well and were inside baseball and knew how things worked, and I asked Charlie Sykes this question, I I think he gave us a percentage, I don't remember what it was, but like, what proportion of those people – are saying these crazy things publicly, right? Like, like, you know, the, like the capital cops are, are crisis actors, (laughs) you know, things like that, right? Like, like what proportion of these people, you know, knowledgeable people, smart people who are making a good living saying crazy things, what proportion of those people believe the grift and what proportion uh, are just
3: cashing in? These are impossible questions to answer. (laughs) I mean, I, in your experience, in your experience, I would say, so, so first of all, let me say people like to delude themselves, right? They don't like to see themselves as cynics who are just, you know, doing something for sinister reasons. And so they persuade themselves that they believe what they're saying. And, um, I will tell a little bit of a tale out of school here. Um, I used to be somewhat friendly with, um, at least on an email basis, back and forth, you know, nice nice um, uh, greetings exchanged with David Limbaugh, Br- Rush Limbaugh's brother. And uh, I knew Rush Limbaugh, too, a little bit. Sorry, that was
1: a FedEx package. Um,
3: <laughs> my dog is barking.
2: She is never going to get accosted by a FedEx. Uh, no. Employee. And by the
1: way, same thing happens when FedEx comes to my house with my dog. So.
3: <laughs> well, as with most dogs, you know, once they got through the door, he'd be like, oh, great, that's <laughs> you, <deal>. <laughs> you can't right be on my yeah, porch. I, like
4: yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> I rub my belly. <laughs> um, exactly. Um, but um,
2: you were saying that you were friendly so I, with David Yeah, Limbaugh.
3: Yeah. I, yeah, a little bit, you know, like not like we didn't see each other, but, you know, on an email basis or, you know, nice greetings, support for one another and so forth. And um, and I met Rush once where I, this was early on in Rush's career, where I went to one of these forums that he organized. He used to do kind of like Trump rallies, frankly, uh, at the time where he had a whole bunch of people come and speak to a huge crowd at a convention center in Long Beach, California. So I met Rush once and I was on his radio show a number of times and he used to read my columns on his show and so on and so forth. Anyway, uh, sometime during the Trump era, David Limbaugh accidentally cc'd me on an exchange with Rush that, you know, he and Rush were talking and they were commenting on something I had said or written and they were saying to each other, gosh, I used to really like her, right? And they accidentally cc'd me and um, so I wrote to David some tart little response and he was he was abashed. He was really upset and apologized profusely for having accidentally included me on that exchange. But here's the takeaway. They were genuinely upset with the position that I was taking, right? And you know, you might look from the outside at Rush Limbaugh and think, He knew exactly what he was doing. He's a cynic. He, you know, and he was in many respects, uh, you know, he was a performer and he was insincere in many ways, but, um, but he also had to, I think, convince himself a little bit that of what he was saying just to get through the day. And, uh, and so I do think that some of these people who are, um, you know, who are saying crazy things are. Uh, convincing themselves to some to some extent, um, and um, the um, the people who um, who I used to you know consider friends and and uh, who are you know sort of opinion leaders or whatever within conservatism, they don't say the craziest kinds of things, but what they do is sort of laugh it off. As you know, ah, oh, well, you know, it's kind of it's no big deal, or it's amusing, or haha, you know, um, uh, Donald Trump has done it again, or there he goes triggering the libs instead of responding in a substantive way. So that's much more often the reaction. It's kind of it's it's taking it lightly, pretending that it's no big deal. That that I've seen.
1: Uh, so you. Prior to, um, prior to coming on to our podcast, you did Charlie Sykes' podcast. You have your own podcast. You have your own column. You are on uh, TV a lot. Um, and so you seem to be working harder now than what I would imagine your work, although you were very prolific you know, back in, in my favorite decade, the 1990s, like you were very prolific then <laughs> you were doing a lot. It of was mine and- too. That's when I had three boys. Oh, uh, well, you still that you still do either just men, right? I mean, they're, yes, <laughs> they're still I, I'm assuming
2: um, you're a hologram given how busy you are, but go ahead. Oh,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is all AI. That's um, right. Do you feel that journalism and commentary today, because everybody seems to just be working so hard and tweeting and blogging and, you know, pushing out so much content. Um, what effect do you think that has on the the field in general, and on the discussion, kind of in a more broad aspect? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was just listening to a podcast
3: um, about how hard Americans work Mm-hmm. And we work harder than almost any other country, and and we valorize work. Um, it's part of our culture. It's part of our values. Um, we take pride in being busy and being overstressed, and you know all of that. These are points of pride in other cultures, even similar cultures like France. You know they they take six weeks off. You know and they're right. happy about it, and. Um, and so it's partly it's cultural you know that that we just we just work really hard and feel that that's how we get our gratification and our ego um affirmation is by working but i think i um i think i might be in a different position if we if i didn't think that the country was in such dire condition i think i might be more inclined to be Doing less now and sort of enjoying life and um, thinking about possible, you know, retirement or at least, you know, cutting back a bit because, you know, I I love to work but I don't need it uh, for, for you know I I feel like I've done enough <laughs> except except that there aren't enough voices on the what used to be the right I mean there aren't enough conservative conservatives or former conservatives or whatever, who are speaking up for the rule of law and the other things that I value and and not just value, but think are indispensable. So I really do think I have a duty at this point to just say, do my small part to add to the voices at the bulwark and elsewhere who are trying to, you know, keep the Keep the flag aloft, um, but otherwise, I I would be inclined to do a lot more cooking and traveling and taking care of my pets and other things that I enjoy doing.
2: Uh, I'm going to be quite earnest here, which I know, like if I was on a, a bulwark podcast, I might get made fun of for. Uh, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I'm going to be quite <laughs> earnest here when I say this. Uh, you said that. You would have scaled it back if our country wasn't in such peril. Uh, I am, I admire the bulwark folks like you and Charlie and Bill and, and Sarah and all those folks so much. You guys were really, you weren't the only voices, but you were a really important voice over the past few years that so many of us deeply appreciate.
3: Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you for saying that.
2: That's the thought honest to God truth. Um, so thank you. anyhow, uh, so please don't leave us. <laughs> yes,
1: <please. laughs> okay. That's, that's don't re- work.
2: Yeah. 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 don't, don't slow you, down. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, you wrote a book in 2018 called, or at least it was published in 2018 called sex matters. And so one of the things you write quite extensively about in that book is that, uh, not that biological sex is all that matters or that cultural manifestations of gender are all that matters, but that both matter, right? And that we can't erase biological sex from uh, the discussion. So, could you just sort of expand upon that? You say it's sort of been the impact of biological sex on divisions in society has been downplayed by the left, by universities, et cetera. Could you you sort of make, tell us about that argument?
3: Sure. Um, You know, that book was, as you say, it was published in 2018, and even in the intervening few years- it has become less and less possible to even say some of the things that I wrote about in that book are now considered, you know, cancelable offenses, like insisting that biological sex is a real thing and that it does affect our personalities and our life choices and lots of things, our behaviors. Um, um, as you say, I'm careful to make the distinction and say, of course, culture matters too, very much. Uh, but it isn't everything. Uh, there are certain traits and certain, um, you know, for example, the effect of testosterone. I mean, we can see that it has an effect on people's behavior and on their minds. Just look at people who transition from female to male and begin to take testosterone and their self-reports about what it does to their sense of self, what it does to their sexuality. Um, you know, there are a million changes that, that we know happen because of the increased amount of testosterone that people take. So uh, that, that are, sorry, sorry, that, that men have versus women. Um, it, 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 it explains a lot <laughs> when you understand the effect of just that one hormone, but there are so many other differences. And, um, and so my argument is always that um, that, Yes, take into account all of the different influences, but don't deny reality. Don't deny science. Uh, deal with it, and uh, and and be aware that these 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 things are real. Further, I I argue in that book that there are a lot of things about traditional femininity that make women happy, and that should be embraced rather than transcended. Um, it, getting married, having children, having a home that's yours, security. Uh, women around the world in every culture are more concerned about security than men. And there's a reason for that. It's because we're the ones who get pregnant and we're the ones who have to care for little kids. We want somebody to take care of us while we're taking care of others. And we need that. And families need that. And one of the things that has gone so badly wrong in our society is that the family is falling apart, and more and more people are raising children without fathers. And it is a very unstable and unhappy situation. It's not to say that everybody who's raised by a single parent is unhappy, far from it, but it's harder. It's much harder. And also, fathers are important. Good fathers are important in the development of both boys and girls, um, and so that's part of what I see as I look around, and I see more and more evidence of this: that uh, the, the loneliness academic, uh, epidemic, the, uh, the, the the rising rates of suicide, the um, the even the embrace of political extremism, I think is partly traceable to the fact that we have fewer intact families forming intact communities um, that that give people a sense of belonging and a sense of meaning. Um, you cannot have intact communities, which are so crucial to civic health, if you don't have intact families. You just can't have it. Families are the the very building block of society. And, you know, I've come to think that same sex families are fine, you know, as long as people stay together, <laughs> as long as the parents put the welfare of their children, uh, and the stability of that marriage very, very, very high on their list of priorities. I'm not saying nobody should ever divorce, obviously. Sometimes it's necessary, but, um, but certainly the epidemic of divorce and, um, you know, uh, never married uh, is a is a huge huge challenge for our society that has radiating effects in every other realm uh, that we're that we're experiencing
2: so you say in that book you say that uh, there's a connection between at least some of the limitations and extremes of modern feminism and aimlessness in men i wonder if yeah. you could if you could expand upon that
3: yeah i i actually think that the f- the basics of life are important to both sexes. So what do I mean by the basics? You're born into a family, you grow up, you form a family of your own. And for, for far, far, far too many people in our society, boys don't grow up to be men who become husbands and fathers. Uh, they become fathers, but not husbands um they they have very detached relationships with their children they don't get the tremendous gratification and um self esteem that comes from playing a key role in the family and i think that that men unfortunately the feminists were too often willing to to denigrate the role of fathers and husbands or to say it wasn't necessary um and uh, i fought them for that because it's extremely necessary we know it from the social science data about the outcomes for kids who are raised uh in intact uh families versus those that aren't that the fathers play a key role they're incredibly important to the self-esteem of their daughters for example girls who are raised by their fathers and mothers are much less likely to have for example eating disorders and uh, or or to have to 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 get pregnant as teenagers or to engage in other risky behaviors boys who are raised by mothers and fathers uh, are much less likely to have trouble in school to get in trouble with the law uh, and so forth. So fathers are key to raising happy, well-adjusted, civilized human beings. And it also, so if you go through life sort of drifting, it without a, a wife, without a family that you are responsible for, um, you are much less likely to meet other milestones in life that are important. You're much less likely to be employed. You're much more likely to have substance abuse issues. You're much more likely to, um, to be radicalized uh, by things you see on the Internet. I mean, there are so many effects of this sort of these, these lost men, uh, men who are not part of families and not part of communities.
2: You know, Mona, when I was listening to your answer, I couldn't help but think of the work of Raj Chetty, who I'm sure you are familiar with and you've, you've uh, used in your work.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I refer to it in the book. Yeah.
2: Right. And so I know you're familiar, but I'll just uh, summarize for our listeners. So Raj Chetty and his colleagues, they have this big data, tens of millions of anonymous tax returns uh, from Americans all across the country. And what they're able to do is to look across these tens of millions of tax returns and see people's adult outcomes, the types of lives that they end up leading uh, in early adulthood. So, whether or not they're upperly mobile, incarcerated, married, the types of incomes that they earn, et cetera, and trace it back to the communities in which they grew up and see if there's a connection between the characteristics of those communities and the outcomes that they that they had later in life. And they found that there were some pretty strong correlations between a variety of variables. But five in particular really stuck out. One was racial segregation, uh, income inequality was another, school quality. Social capital, but one that they found was strong and was the strongest was single parenthood. And they're not talking about single parenthood at the household level, like how your own family impacts you. What they're looking at there is does living in a community with many single parents uh, correlate with your likelihood of being upwardly mobile? And they found that it did. There was a strong negative correlation, meaning that. The more single parents, the less mobility there was from that particular area of the country. They found that even for children who themselves lived in married parent households, right? So even for children whose parents were married, if they lived in a community with many single parents, uh, those folks were less likely to be upwardly mobile in adulthood. Really fascinating research. Yes.
3: Yes.
1: Um, it was it was very funny. Uh, uh, Ms. Ms as you were talking about aimlessness of uh, men's aimlessness, I just looked outside and my husband was out and he's like looking at the lawn to see where there are sort of dry spots because he's watering but he looked very aimless right at that <laughs> moment and i thought oh my gosh my husband is aimless right this moment like that's insane and he came from a two-parent household and diagnosed I know, really, right here right on this here, podcast this is incredible oh no you should have gotten no, the mobile mic location yeah he's yeah. just trying to grow the roses all right never mind he's fine he knows where he is um so uh i would like if this is the is this the last question this is the last question okay I would like to know about your inbox, your email inbox. And here's why. Because I research and write about political media. And my argument is that we're getting our media increasingly from much more siloed places, particularly right wing media. And because it is such a tight circle of outlets, that the folks who get content from this right-wing media circle don't get content from outside of it. I'm wondering when you get blowback, how do people find you and are people from inside that circle reading the bulwark or are they reading tweets about you? And, and so I guess I just want, I want some evidence from you because as EJ Dion said, you know, an N of one, is anecdotal, but an N of two is our data. So, I'm, <laughs> so.
3: it's a trend. <laughs> right? Tumpery Tumpery is a trend, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. People are saying yes. Yeah, people exactly. Saying. People yeah. have told me. Um, so
3: I would say that um, they don't read the bulwark. Uh, I get very, very few, um, very f- few emails from from people who read the bulwark who are not already, you know, sort of well disposed. Let's say. The hate mail, although occasionally, but no, the hate mail comes mostly through Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, um, so that's that's my experience. Ugh, Not I'm very so helpful. Sorry. If, you,
1: if you bounced off of Twitter, do you think the hate mail would just evaporate?
3: No, no. Uh, I don't think it would evaporate, but I do think there would be a lot less of it. Um, then again, there would be also a lot less... Um, positive and a lot less circulation of things I want to circulate. So that's the trade-off. Darn you, Um, social media. Listen, I do not let, I don't let Twitter ruin my day. I really don't. Um, I treat it as a tool. uh, And every now and then if I'm scrolling, I'll say to myself, oh, Wait a minute! I'm scrolling on Twitter. Time to do something useful, and I just turn <laughs> it off. <laughs> so I use it most as a, mostly as a tool. I I post things that I think need posting, respond, but I try to spend as little po- as, as little time as possible actually scrolling.
1: That sounds. Healthy and productive, yes.
3: <laughs> I will say,
2: Mona is, I, I believe you when you say that it doesn't really bother you. Mona's one of like three folks at the Bulwark who just puts her email right there in public, right I do. on the webpage. So, oh yeah,
3: my you say, email's out, out there. Yeah. Bring yeah.
2: it on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, that was our last question we thought, but I actually <laughs> thought of a really, actually very serious question that I think we actually should, should end with. And I'm a bit worried because I really am a huge admirer of the Bulwark. But I see the storm clouds forming. I feel like the, th- it's, the whole thing is about to crumble under the weight of this intense civil war of cats versus dog people. <laughs> so, can you give me your thoughts on that and on which side of the war are you?
3: Okay. So, yes, it's a serious situation. Um, you know, the, the, the lines have been drawn. and, uh, weapons have been chosen. Um, however, I have ridden in to save the day, uh, because just three months ago, uh, being a dog owner, where's there he is. I don't know if you can see him right behind me. That's Ike. Oh, there he is. That's, that's Ike. Ike is our, is our big black mutt. Um, and, uh, but three months ago we adopted a stray cat. So I now straddle the oh, dog divide. I am the unifying figure you are who can lead us out of this terrible morass. Oh,
1: that's fantastic! <laughs> it was it was wonderful watching Charlie Sykes on different cable news you know hits as the number of dog pictures grew I know. you know sort of like every day like there was one and then there was two and then I just sort of thought okay now it's now it's getting aggressive um, thank, and 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 thank you for for coming in to save this because we really we we need you guys and we need you all to join pause. And, you know, and get along because this kind of, of dissent and discussion is incredibly important for the least I could do and for incredibly important for America. Uh, Mona Charon, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic.
2: Yes. Thank you so much, Mona. This was such a pleasure and really such an honor.
3: Thanks. I, these are great questions and I enjoyed meeting both of you.
2: Okay. Well, in light of what we covered during this discussion today, we will forego our usual outro and play you out with some clips.
4: Mr. President, today was heartbreaking. And uh, and I was shaken to the core as I thought about the people I met in China and Russia and Afghanistan and Iraq and other places who yearn for freedom and who look to this building and these shores as a place of hope. And I saw the images being broadcast around the world and it breaks my heart. I have 25 grandchildren, many of them were watching TV, thinking about this building, whether their grandpa was okay. I knew I was okay. I must tell you as well, I was proud to serve with these men and women. This is an extraordinary group of people. I'm proud to be a member of the United States Senate and meet with people of integrity as we do here today. Now we gather, due to a selfish man's injured pride and the outrage of supporters who he has deliberately misinformed for the past two months and stirred to action this very morning. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the President of the United States. Those who choose to continue to support his dangerous gambit by objecting to the results of a legitimate democratic election will forever be seen as being complicit in an unprecedented attack against our democracy. Fairly or not, they'll be remembered for their role in this shameful episode in American history. That will be their legacy. I salute Senator Langford and Leffler, and Braun and Daines and I'm sure others who in the light of today's outrage have withdrawn their objection. For any who remain insistent on an audit in order to satisfy the many people who believe that the election was stolen, I'd offer this perspective. No congressional audit is ever gonna convince these voters, particularly when the president will continue to say that the election was stolen. The best way we can show respect for the voters who are upset is by telling them the truth. That's the burden. That's the duty of leadership. The truth is that President-elect Biden won the election. President Trump lost. I've had that experience myself. It's no fun. Scores of courts, the president's own attorney general, state election officials, both Republican and Democrat have reached that unequivocal decision. And in light of today's sad circumstances, I asked my colleague, do we weigh our own political fortunes more heavily than we weigh the strength of our republic, the strength of our democracy, and the cause of freedom? What's the weight of personal acclaim compared to the weight of conscience? Leader McConnell said that the vote today is the most important in his 36 years of public service. Think of that, authorizing two oars, voting and two impeachments. He said that not because the vote reveals something about the election, it's because this vote reveals something about us. I urge my colleagues to move forward with completing the electoral count, to refrain from further objections, and to unanimously affirm the legitimacy of the presidential election. Thank you, Mr. President.
0: There's a chapel in Kansas, standing on the exact center of the lower 48. It never closes. All are more than welcome to come meet here in the middle. It's no secret. The middle has been a hard place to get to lately, between red and blue, between servant and citizen, between our freedom, and our fear. Now fear has never been the best of who we are. And as for freedom, it's not the property of just the fortunate few. It belongs to us all. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, it's what connects us. And we need that connection. We need the middle. We just have to remember the very soil we stand on is common ground. So we can get there. We can make it to the mountaintop, through the desert. And we will cross this divide. Our light has always found its way through the darkness. And there's hope on the road. Up ahead.